All right, so I'm going to get underway here, as close to on time as I can, and we're going to really be moving at quite a clip. Uh, some of the material tonight will be, I suppose, of greater interest to you than other things we've studied because it's somewhat controversial, and I'll be moving rather quickly at that. Um, but please do not hesitate to, uh, to raise your hand and uh, ask questions and stop me and challenge me wherever you may think that is necessary. Last week we began our unit on social ethics, and we studied for quite a while the question of Christ and culture. I began by telling you of the battle that we see implicit in the Bible between humanism and theism in the development of culture. The Bible teaches us that out of the heart are the issues of life. Consequently, the issues of life as they pertain to human culture, be they economics or art or medicine or what have you, literature, music, anything pertaining to human culture is going to be governed by the condition of a man's heart. If a man has a hardened heart, a, uh, a stone heart against God and his requirements, he'll develop a particular culture that reflects that, a culture that is humanistic, that reflects the values of, of human beings as being um, supreme, man being central, and man being his own standard. On the other hand, if a man has a renewed heart, then out of that heart will flow the issues of life in a way which is pleasing to God. Um, he'll develop his music and his literature and his medicine and his industry and his economics and his government and all the rest in a way that pleases the Lord. So there is an implicit battle between uh, humanism and theism. However, there are certain attitudes. Remember, I gave you an outline of attitudes toward the relationship between Christ and culture. There are those who say Christ stands over against culture. He's in war against culture. There are those who say that um, the Christ we present is the Christ of culture. That is Christ and his word being um, shaped by the desires of the society in which one lives and the uh, development of his civilization. Then there's the view of Christ above culture, be it by way of synthesis or um, dualism or transformation. Christ will either um, take his word and synthesize it with the word of the culture or there'll be two kingdoms recognize the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the culture, or there'll be, in fact, the view that Christ should be transforming culture, and that's the view that I maintain. I argued for the necessity of the transformation of all areas of life by the word of Jesus Christ. Then we took up the question of the priority of the cultural mandate or the priority of the evangelistic mandate in Scripture, and what I argued was that uh, the cultural mandate is prior to the evangelistic mandate, it has a priority which is definitional in character, historical in character, and ultimate in character. That is, the cultural mandate defines the terms of the evangelical mandate. It's historically prior, it comes first, and ultimately it is the end of the evangelical mandate. The evangelical mandate, on the other hand, the Great Commission, is prior to the cultural mandate as the means is prior to the end. Uh, it is necessary to redeem men that they might serve God and, and subdue the earth to his glory. Uh, the focus of the kingdom in this age is a redemptive focus, I said. So there's another priority for the evangelistic mandate. And finally, the evangelistic mandate has an ultimate, uh, I'm sorry, has a, a priority having to do with its urgency. In this age, Paul was willing to forego certain cultural benefits in order that he might bring men to know Jesus Christ as Savior. So there is a place and a priority for the cultural mandate as well as the evangelistic mandate in the uh, uh, life of the kingdom today. Then toward the end of our 
time together, I argued that the standard in uh, socio-political morality must be God's law, just as that standard of God's law reigns in the realm of private and individual morality. Um, if you don't hold that view, I argued that you end up with an implicit polytheism. We have one God lording it over this area of life and another God lording it over another area of life. And then we also saw the difficulty of uh, having one standard for social morality and another standard for private morality when we looked at the law of God itself and noted that it's very difficult to find seams in the law of God. It's very difficult to say, well, I'll follow the law of God up to this point, but after that, what is the principle that tells you after that that you don't have to follow it? Well, we couldn't find such a principle, not very easily. And then finally, we looked at the objections of Meredith Klein to the view that God's law is the standard of socio-political morality today and found them wanting. All right, that um, is briefly a summary of what we did last week in social ethics. Does anybody have any questions before we go on? That's the unit on Christ and culture. I hope you know something about the relationship between those two now. Well, that raises secondly, Dan, and we're going to spend some time tonight in this, what is, the, what is the relationship of the church to the state? Having said all this about Christ and culture, Christ is to transform culture so that the battle of theism would be won, the theistic approach to culture would be victorious over humanism. Uh, Christ must transform all areas of life by his word, and that entails the cultural mandate as well as the evangelistic mandate. It means we must bring the standard of God's law to bear on our socio-political ethic. But what does that mean with respect to the church and the state? The whole question of the separation of church and state is a rather difficult one through history, through the history of the church. And I want to begin by stating just very briefly what the ideal is when it comes to the separation of church and state. And if you just remember this little motto throughout this discussion of church and state, I think it will help you to sort out the issues. The ideal which we seek, I believe, as Christians, is a free church in a free state. Very simply put, we are seeking a free church in a free state, where, of course, freedom is properly defined by both. A state is not free to do just anything it wants. I don't mean a free state that is an autonomous state, free from the dictates of God's word and law, nor do I mean a church that is free to just violate whatever uh, imperative comes from the state that it wants to. That is a church that is uh, without scruples. So freedom has to be properly defined. But the ideal, simply put, is a free church in a free state. Now, if you have that ideal before your mind, a free church and a free state, let me help you to sort out three separate issues, three logically separate questions or issues that commonly come under the rubric of church-state issues today. Uh, in fact, you will probably get your money's worth out of tonight's lecture if you'll but master this distinction that I'm going to be bringing out, because um, of all the convoluted and confused questions having to do with church and state today, uh, if a person could just distinguish these three separate issues, then he'd be able to see through the maze. First of all, there's the question of papalism versus Erastianism. Okay. 
papalism versus erastianism. Papalism, very briefly, is the word I'm using to denote the view that the church dominates the state, that the pope or somebody uh, like the pope in a, in a church relationship, that the pope dictates to the state what it can and cannot do. Papalism. The idea that the church dominates the state. Now, obviously, Erastianism is going to be the opposite of that, which is what? That the state dominates the church. Okay? I'm, I'm using very simple terms. I'm going to give a historical survey here in a minute. We'll get a little more complicated. Not much more, but a little. Right now, very simply, papalism is the church dominates the state. Erastianism says the state dominates the church. That is an institutional question of preeminence. Please get that in your notes. That's the question of which institution should be preeminent over the other. Now, notice very clearly there's a separate question having to do with establishmentarianism, what I'm going to call the principle of establishment, versus the principle of voluntarism. The second question has to do with whether churches should be given state financial support and approval. That is, whether there should be a state church. Establishmentarianism is that the state establishes a church. So as in Germany, you have the Lutheran church, or in England, you have the um, Anglican church. These are state-established churches. The state recognizes churches, and the state pays ministers. All right, so there is financial support from the state. The state taxes people in a parish, and it pays the minister, the state-approved minister in that area. Now, over against the principle of establishment, of state establishment, you find what is called the voluntary principle. And very simply, the voluntary principle is that churches ought to be recognized or approved and financially supported on the voluntary basis of individuals within the society. That is what we have in this country, so you'll understand it very simply. A man freely chooses to go to whatever church he wants, and he gives his money to the church he attends. The state does not tax him and then pay the ministers in that locale. Okay, that's voluntarism, or voluntarism, if you want to put it another way. So you have establishmentarianism versus voluntarism. The uh, establishment view is that the state establishes churches and financially supports them, and the other view is that individuals support the churches. Yes, Jim? Could you clarify for me then the difference between Erastianism and establishment? Um, most Erastians are establishmentarianists. They do believe that, um, that since the state dominates the church, the state also recognizes the church and supports it. However, a person, log I'm saying these are logically separate. Historically, uh, Erastianism and the principle of establishment have gone hand in hand. However, there have been Erastians, or at least there could be Erastians, that believe in the voluntary principle. They could believe that the state will dictate to the church. However, individuals can decide which church they go to. But the state dictates to all of them. You see what I'm getting at? Now, granted, that's not been a, a common opinion, but it's, it's logically possible to hold those two. But now thirdly, and this is the issue that so many people get confused today, but, oh, that's, before I go into the third, this is a question of favoritism, by the way. Favoritism among denominations. 
What is the first question? It's a question of institutional preeminence. The second question is a question of favoritism among denominations. But now thirdly, and this is logically separate from the other two, is the question, I'm going to put it this way, of theocracy versus pluralism. Theocracy versus pluralism. Uh, those who hold to the theocratic view, at least the one that I'm going to be referring to tonight, say that the state's moral obligation is to the law of God. So the state must obey the dictates of God. Now, over against that, you have the pluralist principle that the state's direction is purely by popular opinion, apart from objective moral duty, as understood by some religion. Apart from what some religion may understand as the objective moral duty of magistrates, the state must recognize the pluralistic principle. It must, if you will, rule only by popular opinion. Yeah, the theocratic view, the one that, I mean, there are many views of theocracy, but the one I'm talking about tonight, is that the state has a moral obligation to the objective law of God. Now, whether the state does that or not is another question, but the theocratic view is that the state ought to obey the law of God. Over against that, the pluralist says, no, the state is not bound to recognize any objective duty as held by some religion. The state is simply to follow the popular opinion of the masses. That's why it's called pluralism. All religions are legitimate. Every religion has as much right as mm -hmm. the other, and therefore it's just a question of democratic majority. Now, do you see that this third question now is a question of moral responsibility? I'm trying to draw out for you the logical difference. The first one is a question of institutional preeminence. The second is a question of favoritism among denominations, and the third is a question of moral obligation. Now, mark my words. If I were a betting man, I'd bet with you the next time you get into an argument with somebody over church-state relationships, you will find them continually confusing all three of those questions. Now, it helps to have labels for the positions because you can get them sorted out in your mind, but I'm not talking about people who don't use the labels right or who have no labels. The fact is these issues are confused as to whether there should be an institutional preeminence, whether there should be an objective moral rule over the magistrate, whether there should be denominational favoritism. Now, let me give you some historical highlights. I'm going to go through the history of the problem of church-state relationships in a way that will probably make your head swim because it's going to be fast. So... Um, if you want to take notes, I would suggest you just be very sketchy about it, because I'm not going to be able to slow down too much. I'm going to start from the very beginning of the church's existence, and I'm going to wind up in the 20th century, in about 15, 20 minutes here. So here we go. If you will, let me suggest that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, drawing a picture for you, various scenes, various scenarios, if you will, of... Uh, significant developments, highlights in the development of church-state relations. And the first scenario would be the hostility, which we recognize already in the New Testament, between the church and the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire, with its own state religion, stood in hostility over against the church. Um, obviously, in the book of Revelation, there's the hostility between the 144,000 and the beast that we find in Revelation 13 and 14. And so we first see the relationship between church and state as one of hostility. Now, that hostility ended with Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313 A.D. Constantine, as you know, had the dream that in the sign of the cross he would conquer. Constantine then allegedly converted to Christianity. 
and he made the church um, a legitimate religion, the Christian church a legitimate religion within the Roman Empire, and uh, in time made the Christian religion the religion of the Roman Empire. Now, what that brought with it was toleration for Christianity, but at a price, the price that the church would be subject to the Roman state. Okay, so you see hostility giving way to the Edict of Milan with Constantine in 313. Augustine expressed what is going to come to be, I think, the, the uh, classic reform position. Uh, not, By the way, I recognize in all of this that people have lesser and greater degrees of, uh, of specificity and detail and approximation to the truth. Augustine wrote very early. He obviously had troubles in, in what he wrote. But in seed form, Augustine expressed what will come to be the reform view in that division between the city of man and the city of God whereby he taught that both the church and the state are ordained of God and yet they have separate jurisdictions. One is a civil jurisdiction, the other has a spiritual jurisdiction. Okay, Hostility, and that's our first scenario. Then Constantine, the Edict of Milan, our second scenario. Thirdly, Augustine's City of Man and City of God division. Now, Pope Galatius I, do I have to write these names down? Pope Galatius I in 494 wrote to the Emperor Anastasius I. These are great names. Anybody who's about ready to have a baby and needs a few ideas. How about Anastasius Schneider? Sound pretty good? Okay. That isn't to say that the pastor's wife is pregnant. Pope Galatius I wrote in 494 to the Byzantine Emperor Anastasius I that there were two swords. Sounds very good. A temporal sword and a spiritual sword. However, Pope Galatius said that the spiritual sword was of higher importance because it must give account for kings before God. See, already then you see the seed. I'm giving just the highlighted developments. There you have the seed of the development. The church now is going to come to dominate the state. The spiritual sword is a bit higher in importance than the temporal sword. Papal supremacy is evident symbolically, finally, in the crowning of Charlemagne in 800 A.D. over the Holy Roman Empire by Pope Leo III. Anybody remember what the people shouted when the Pope crowned Charlemagne in St. Peter's? He has been crowned of God. See, God, through his vicar on earth, had given approval to Charlemagne. And so now here the church had actually established the emperor. Pope Gregory VII, Terrible use of that name. But nevertheless, Pope Gregory VII sent out the Dictatus Pape, that is the Pope's dictate, the Dictatus Pape, declaring that absolute world supremacy belongs to God's representative on earth. Who is that? The Pope, who thus has the power to have princes kiss his feet and to depose all emperors. You may remember that Pope Gregory VII, Hildebrand, also, he's also called, was the one who deposed Henry IV, the German prince, excommunicated him from the church and forbade anyone to serve him as king because Henry had uh, committed the grave offense of appointing somebody in the church without the pope's approval. So he deposed Henry IV, excommunicated him, and forbade anyone to serve him as king, and the king eventually stood barefoot in penitence garb on Christmas Day, didn't he? outside the palace 
of the Pope pleading for mercy. That's the year 1077. All right? We've gone through a thousand years of history now, all the way from the hostility of the church state in the Roman Empire to Christianity, to Christianity becoming the religion of the Roman Empire, to the two swords declared by the Pope, uh, with the spiritual one being supreme, to now popes make and break emperors. Now, this papal power was symbolically broken, however, not completely broken by any means, but symbolically broken in the struggles between Boniface VIII and Philip IV of France. Boniface VIII, of course, was the pope. Boniface VIII had a very difficult time with Philip IV of France, especially in the years 1301 to 1303. And I'd love to go into the story. It's a rather humorous one in one sense. But very simply, it goes like this. Philip brought to trial a papal legate in England. I'm sorry, in France. I'll get it right here. In France. That is to say, he wished to proceed against a representative of the Pope without the Pope's permission. Boniface responded by asserting the supremacy of the Pope over all earthly magistrates and summarily summoned Philip to Rome. All right, so Philip's in trouble now. The Pope says, you come and appear to me, you think you're going to try my legate without permission from me. Philip said, that's what you think. <laughs> and so he broke communications with the Pope, and he tried to bring Boniface to trial before his tribunal. In response, Boniface VIII, not to be outdone, <laughs> issued the uh, papal dictate, Unum Sanctum, which declared that both the swords are in the hand of the Pope, the temporal sword, as well as the spiritual sword. You see what a change we have from way back in 494 where Pope Galatius said there are two swords and one's a little bit more important than the other. Now Boniface says, I have both the swords, and Philip, you will not do anything without my permission. And so Boniface prepared a bull of excommunication. And so it looks like another one of these situations with Hildebrand and um, our, our Gregory Seventh with uh, Henry IV, right? And he's going to excommunicate the king. The king's going to have to plead for the pope's forgiveness lest people fail to follow him. But before the bull of excommunication could be, could be uh, read out against Philip, Philip's men took the pope prisoner. <laughs> However, they only kept him prisoner for three days because the Italian army freed him. But in a month he died. And so who won? Well, in a sense, nobody won. But the fact is, a king got away with actually imprisoning the Pope. And so there, symbolically speaking, the power of papalism over the um, state was symbolically broken. Now, papalism has been symbolized throughout history by what is called the triregum. Anybody know what the triregum is? The, the triple crown? You ever stop to wonder what it means when the Pope wears a triple crown? It's a sad thing in our day. Uh, not that I think it's all that interesting to learn about Roman Catholicism, but nevertheless, that triple crown is highly significant. The triple crown worn by the Pope throughout history uh, at ceremonial events indicated his spiritual supremacy, that is, he is God's vicar on earth, the spiritual supremacy of the Pope. Secondly, his temporal dominion, that he rules over uh, Christ's temporal dominion. And thirdly, that he has sovereign right over all earthly monarchs. The triple crown is an enduring symbol to this day of papalism, the sovereignty of the Pope over the state. Now, for obvious reasons that I'm not going to go into tonight, the Reformation inaugurated a whole new era in, church state, in the church-state question. 
I mean, the whole thing was blown wide open by the Reformation, because not only is it uh, um, a question of whether the Pope rules over the state or the state over the Pope now, it's a whole question of whether the Pope rules over the Church. And then also whether those magistrates who are in um, league with the Reformation, you know, like um, Philip uh, helped uh, Martin Luther and so forth, uh, do these men have to take um, um, dictates from the Pope? Do they dictate to the Pope? Do they have no relationship to the Pope? What is their relationship to the Protestant Church? So, I mean, the whole question is just thrown wide open by the Reformation. Luther's position can be found, I believe, in the 1530 Augsburg Confession, where Luther and the Lutherans said, quote, the ecclesiastical power deals with things eternal and is exercised only by the ministry of the word. Thus, it does not interfere with the administration of civil affairs. The ecclesiastical and civil powers are not to be confounded, end of quote. A rather clear expression of the separation of church and state and that these two um, domains are not, to are not to meddle with the business of each other. However, Lutheranism has drifted, I guess all of you know, into a state church in Germany that the original um, uh, separation that Luther wanted was not maintained by the Lutheran Church. Let's see if I can get my notes in order here. Okay, under the Bourbon monarchy in France and under the Romanov dynasty in Russia, the Church came under the power of the monarchy again. And you'll note that these unions between Church and State in France and in Russia were specifically attacked by the French and Communist revolutions in due time. Okay, my point is, in Germany, in France, and in Russia, we do not maintain a separation of church and state. We drift into a church state in Germany and into um, similar uh, situations in France and Russia. Now, over against that development in Germany, France, and Russia, I want to paint the picture of Calvin's Geneva. Despite popular misconceptions, pop, uh, popular misconceptions of Calvin's autocratic rule in Geneva. There's an interesting autocrat who had the, the dogs of his enemies uh, sent on him every time he walked down the street. A man who was exiled from Geneva, a man who had to fight the city council continually. Calvin was not the dictator that people make him out to be by any means. That's a historical myth. But in Calvin's Geneva, there was quite a different situation than the eras of Germany, France, and Russia. Calvin's views, indeed, through Puritan influence from England, come to be dominant in America. And that's why it's important whether you like Calvinism or not to study Calvin. As any number of historians have said, um, uh, Leopold von Ranke is the um, outstanding one, Calvin is indeed the father of American democracy. Uh, now, how can that be with so many people not liking Calvin? Well, I'll try to explain to you. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, Book 4, Chapter 11, Section 1, Calvin said that the spiritual polity of the Church of God, quote, is entirely distinct from civil polity. And when Calvin wrote in 1553 to the ministers of Zurich, he said, quote, the consistory, that is the session in our nomenclature, the consistory has no civil jurisdiction but only the right to reprove according to the word of God. And its severest punishment is excommunication, end of quote. So there, in a nutshell, is Calvin's view. The church does not rule the state. The only punishment the church has, the severest one, is excommunication. And Calvin resisted the city council's attempt in Geneva to approve of elders and to govern excommunications in the church. 
city council wanted to say there will be no elders in the church apart from our approval and there will be no church discipline apart from that which goes before our courts. Calvin resisted that to the end. You may recall, of course, the famous day that Calvin served communion and the libertines came to take communion even though they had been excommunicated by the elders because the city council had not governed that excommunication. And Calvin covered the elements with his hands and with his body and he said, you may take me and you may kill me, but I will never allow the elements to be served to those who are um, excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ. It was kind of, you know, a classic showdown. The Libertines left the Church. But anyway, Calvin fought, you see, diligently for a separation of Church and State. The Church does not govern the discipline of the Church. I mean, the State doesn't dis uh, govern the discipline of the Church, and the Church does not discipline the State. Those are separate realms, two different spheres. On the other hand, note that, and this is very important when we come down to this other question now, of theocracy versus pluralism, that although Calvin defended the institutional separation of the church and the state, he, on the other hand, argued that the state is responsible to observe the law of God in its civil affairs. And so, in summary, the classic Calvinistic view, classic because it's Calvin's own view, is that each institution, church and state, is to operate in its God-given spheres, but both institutions are under the authority of God because God ordained them both. All right, let's move on in our historical sketch here. Queen Mary, our beloved bloody Mary, attempted to impose Romanism on Scotland, refusing to ratify the Scots Confession, which had come from the Scottish Parliament. And when John Knox defended the Scots Confession to Queen Mary to her face, she accused Knox of teaching the people to receive another religion than their princes allow. Uh, John Knox was a man after my own heart, and he replied, quote, As right religion took neither origin nor authority from worldly princes, but from the eternal God alone, so are not subjects bound to frame their religion according to the appetites of their princes. End of quote. Boy, in a, in, you know, just a thumbnail sketch. There it is. He says, look, right religion didn't come from princes, and therefore whatever your appetite is, whatever your taste may be for religion, Mary, we are not bound to that taste. We are bound only to the eternal God. Indeed, Knox said, when, uh, when Knox defended the Presbyterian Church and Queen Mary said that she uh, thought that the proper Kirk, the proper church, was the Roman one, Knox said, no, the Roman harlot is not the immaculate bride of the Lord. <laughs> and so they had reason not to like each other, you can be sure. Knox and Mary fought bitterly thereafter, you may know the story of that. And note that when her Secretary of State, Maitland was his name, when the Secretary of State, Maitland, instructed Knox that the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church could not meet without the Queen's approval, he replied, it's a long monologue, but the, the most pithy sentence in it is, quote, take from us the liberty of assemblies, and you take from us the gospel. I dare say there are not many Presbyterians who are of such conviction today to believe that the very gospel is at stake when the church tries to dominate the courts of the church. Uh, yeah, when the state tries to dominate the courts of the church. Take from us the liberty of assemblies, and you take from us the gospel. Now, another Scottish clergyman, Andrew Melville, confronted King James VI with these words. He said to King James, quote, There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the Lord of this commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the King of the church, whose subject James VI is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. 
Let me give that to you again. That's a, that's a rather classic quotation. Andrew Melview. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the Lord of this commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the King of the Church, whose subject James VI is, and whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. Now, the second book of discipline, listen very closely. It's very hard to get these quotations. Uh, I'd be very thankful that I ran them down for you. It was hard work. The second book of discipline of the Scottish Presbyterian Church, uh, ratified in 1578, maintained a number of things. I'm going to read just a few to you. One, quote, diligence should be taken that only ecclesiastical things be handled in the assemblies and that there be no meddling with anything pertaining to civil jurisdiction. Okay, so on the one hand, you see the church is not to meddle in civil affairs. But two, on the other hand, listen to this. Quote, the spiritual rulers, ministers in the church, the spiritual rulers should require the Christian magistrate to minister justice and punish vice. The ministers exercise not the civil jurisdiction, but teach the magistrate how it should be exercised according to the word. One more quote, magistrates are to make laws and constitutions agreeable to God's word without usurping anything that pertains not to the civil sword. I dare say, in, in um, just a nutshell, that is the classic Calvinistic position come into its own. The church is not to meddle in civil affairs. The civil magistrate is not to meddle in anything but civil affairs. That is, he's not to meddle into the church. On the other hand, the rulers in the church do instruct the magistrate out of the word of God as to how he should rule. That's Calvin's position. The church and the state are separate jurisdictions, both responsible to the word of God. Now let's come up to the Westminster Assembly. Erastians at the Westminster Assembly maintained that the state has supreme authority in ecclesiastical affairs because they said, quote, the state was, I'm sorry, the church was a creature of the state, end of quote. The church is in fact a creature of the state and therefore the state should rule it. The Erastians at the Westminster Assembly. Now those of you who are in seminary or those of you interested in this question, who was the dominant opponent of the Erastians at the Westminster Assembly. He debated, uh, this is kind of like one of these quizzes you get on the TV show, John Sheldon, remember, was his opponent. And in one day's speech, he wiped out Sheldon's arguments. He was a young man. He came from Scotland. George Gillespie, that's right. He destroyed the Erastians in one day's speech arguing for the divine right of Christ to rule his church through his ministers alone. The assembly adopted his proposition that, quote, Jesus Christ as king and head of his church hath appointed an ecclesiastical government in his church in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil government. That was his proposition, and that's the one that won the day. Now, the Westminster Confession teaches that the civil magistrate is responsible to God's word. I argue that in Theonomy, and uh, James Jordan argues that in his uh, paper on the judicial law of Moses, and you can find it argued any number of places. The Westminster Confession teaches the responsibility of magistrates of the Word of God. But now, this is the salient point for church-state relationships. In chapter 31, section 4, our confession says, Synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical and are not to intermeddle with civil affairs with which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they be thereunto required by the civil magistrate. 
In historical context, what they're saying is the church is not to meddle in civil affairs unless, you see, there are extraordinary situations where they must, by humble petition, confront the magistrate or where he asks their advice and for conscience sake they must give it. The church instructs the magistrate, but the church does not dictate to the magistrate. Okay, now let's come over at the very same time to New England. Yes, Greg? Would it be possible for the magistrate to instruct the church? No. Magistrate can call assemblies um, in um, extraordinary situations where it's necessary to settle the church. Uh, and I have a long discussion of that proposition in, in our confession um, in an appendix to my book, The Honoring Christian Ethics, where I uh, demonstrate that, that was not an Erastian principle that was uh, written into the constitution of our church. The magistrate has some concern for the church. He's to be a nursing father to the church, in fact. However, the magistrate may not dictate to the church because there is a separate government in the church. That's the divine right of church government. Okay, uh, then is the churchman allowed to dictate to the state? No, that's what I just said. Okay, then it is possible that the statesman can, can instruct without dictating and the churchman instructs without dictating to the... Yes, you know, absolutely. Isn't that what I'm doing to you right now? I cannot dictate what you will believe, but I am instructing you in what you, I think you ought to believe. And the church may instruct the state, and the state may do that, may uh, call synods uh, in the church where there is an unsettled region of the church or something like that, but there was, no, there was no dictating back and forth between them. Now, in New England, John Cotton, this is at the very same time as the Westminster Assembly, same period of uh, history, in New England, John Cotton taught that a theocracy was the best form of government for men. He argued that in his, um, in his booklet, A Discourse About Civil Government in a Plantation Whose End is Religion, or if you will, abbreviated A Discourse About Civil Government, <clears throat> authored in 1663. Okay, he said a theocracy is the best form of human government. Okay, now people who have misconceptions of Calvin's Geneva, misconceptions of uh, New England Puritanism, misconceptions of theocracy, Say, aha, there it is. See, there's that theocratic view coming out. However, in this discourse, Cotton defined a theocracy very clearly. He said, a theocracy is where the Lord God is our governor and where the laws by which men rule are the laws of God. That didn't mean that the church dominated the state. It just meant that the governor recognizes God and his law. Now, Lars Ziff, a person that I have no reason to suspect of theonomic sympathies, uh, wrote a well-known book on John Cotton, The Career of John Cotton, in 1962. And on pages 97 and 98 of Ziff's book, Z-I-F-F, Larzer Ziff, um, biographer of, uh, of Cotton, said, quote, The best form was theocracy, which for Cotton meant separate but parallel civil and ecclesiastical organizations framed on the evidence of scriptures. Church and state, he believed, now listen closely, this is, we're going to use Aristotelian language. Church and state, he believed, were of the same genus. All right? The genus is order. Both church and state serve the genus of order. They have the same author, God, and the same end, God's glory. So both the church and state are in the genus of order, ordained of God for God's glory. On the level of species, however, the two diverged. 
Here the end of the church was salvation of souls, while that of the state was the preservation of society in justice. Okay, so Ziff uh, is summarizing Cotton's view. Two parallel, distinct but parallel institutions, both answerable to God. Now, in 1648, the Synod of the Massachusetts Churches adopted what is called the Cambridge Platform. The Cambridge Platform stated that church government was not to meddle with civil government and that magistrates were not to meddle with the work of church officers. And thirdly, that civil authorities should maintain both tables of the Decalogue. Okay, let's move up a little bit further in time to 1777. At the time of American independence... Oh, Jim? Are you familiar at all with Thomas Colbert's work on the civil magistrate? I don't believe I am. He wrote it from the New England colonies and I think it was dedicated to Oliver Cromwell or something like that. Now that you... I'm familiar with something like that, but I, I mean, nothing so distinct as I could answer any questions. To 1777. At the time of American independence. Oh, Jim? Are you familiar at all with Thomas Colbert's work on the civil magistrate? I don't believe I am. He wrote from the New England colonies, and I think it was dedicated to Oliver Cromwell or something like that. Now that you I'm familiar with something like that, but I, I mean, nothing so distinct as I could answer any questions for you about it. Okay, at the time of American independence, the Presbytery of Hanover in this country now, I, I'm, I hope you can all see that I started with this broad view and I'm coming down narrowing, I'm going to be looking at the U.S. Constitution in just a minute. At the time of American independence, the Presbytery of Hanover petitioned the Virginia House of Burgesses, this is a state question, the Virginia House of Burgesses, to allow, quote, the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of our consciences. People have wanted to seize on that as saying, well, see, there the... Uh, here's this presbytery recognizing the church and the state are totally separate. The, the state has no responsibility to the word of God at all. Is that what it says? The free exercise of religion according to the dictates of our consciences. A Presbyterian presbytery petitioning the House of Burgesses in Virginia against the principle of the establishment of religion. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, both Anglicans, mind you, drafted and supported the bill for establishing religious freedom in 1777. It was enacted in 1785 after a long period of debate. And this bill supporting uh, establishing religious freedom supported voluntarism against the establishment of a state-supported church of the Church of England. And time won't allow me to read some quotations from that. But you see, what that was arguing is that people should be allowed to support the church of their choice and not be taxed to support the Anglican church in America. That is, they were arguing against the establishment of religion, which is to say, arguing against favoritism to a particular denomination. Please keep that in mind, because with this illustrious background, all the way from the hostility of the Roman Empire down here to Jefferson and Madison, with all the back and forth between papalism, Erastianism, establishmentarianism, and voluntarism, with all of that, we can contextually understand, then, the separation of church and state in the United States Constitution. I want to read for you the only two sentences dealing with the question in our Constitution. They're very short. In the Constitution itself, we read, No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. 
No religious test shall be made a standard for a man operating in the office of magistrate. And then secondly, the First Amendment, which I trust you all know almost by heart, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Marcellus Kick, in a, in a very fine book, by the way, for those of you who want to pursue further what I'm telling you tonight, Church and State, the Story of Two Kingdoms, Marcellus Kick says very pithily and correctly of the Constitution. The First Amendment to our Constitution provides a legal separation between the church and the state, not a moral nor a spiritual separation. It provides simply that Congress cannot establish a denomination as the favored religion, nor can it prohibit any denomination from establishing itself on American soil. The wall of separation is legal, we repeat, not moral or spiritual. There is no reason under the Constitution of the United States why the principles of Christianity cannot pervade the laws and institutions of the United States of America. Unless you think that's just the biased opinion of some old fogey who was a churchman, I'd like to read to see the concurring opinion of Justice Douglas back at the time of the prayer in school issue. Douglas said, quote, The court analogizes the present case, that is, draws an analogy between the present case to those involving the traditional established church. We once had an established church, the Anglican. All baptisms and marriages had to take place there. That church was supported by taxation. In these and other ways, the Anglican church was favored over the others. The First Amendment put an end to placing any one church in a preferred position. It ended support of any church or all churches by taxation. It went further and prevented secular sanction to any religious ceremony, dogma, or rite. Thus it prevents civil penalties from being applied against recalcitrants or nonconformists. Now, Kick says, what both Madison and Jefferson, by the way, men who were leading proponents of the First Amendment, both Madison and Jefferson, men who argued together in the Virginia House of Burgesses for this very principle, what they desired was the prohibition by Congress of an establishment of a church state or the use of tax money in support of organized religion, a precept clearly reflected in the use of the phrase, an establishment of religion. According to the dictionary definition of the word, establishment, when employed in such a context means, quote, an ecclesiastical system established by law, a state church. And the dictionary defines established religion as, quote, a form of religion officially recognized and privileged by the government, end of quote. And so Hicks says, thus, both the historical setting and the usual significance of the phrase an establishment of religion definitely indicate what the constitutional wall was intended to separate, church and state, not religion and state. The source of confusion comes from our tendency to employ the words church and religion as synonymous. To maintain that there must be a separation between church and state does not necessarily mean that there must be a separation between religion and state. The constitutional authority, Cooley, in his book, The Principles of Constitutional Law, 1891, said that the phrase at issue, establishment of religion, quote, meant the setting up or recognition of a state church or at least the conferring upon a church of special favors and advantages which are denied to others. It was never intended by the Constitution that the government should be prohibited from recognizing religion. That was a quick survey, I recognize. But I, I think in historical um, panorama, in the context of what I've been telling you about the debates through history, these highlights of historical development, in the legal and um, 
and historical setting of our Constitution, it's quite clear that when the Constitution says there shall be no establishment of religion, it means that there should not be a state church. It argues for the separation of two institutions, saying that we should not have a church-dominated state or a state-dominated church. It does not argue for the separation of government from ethics. Note what I'm telling you is that it says papalism versus Erastianism, the first question before us, is not to be answered on either side. It's a false dichotomy. These are separate jurisdictions. The state doesn't govern the church. The church doesn't govern the state. Secondly, there shall be no establishment of religion, no state church, but rather voluntarism. It does not take up the question or even question the legitimacy of theocratic views. But the whole plea of church-state separation today in the popular media has to do with question number three, a question that is totally apart from the Constitution. Do you see what I'm telling you? People argue today for the separation of the state from morality rather than the question of the establishment of one denomination over another by tax support. There's clearly a difference, and I think it's a, it's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. It's, it's, you see a violation of the sanctity of the truth for people to argue and confuse those two questions. Historically, they're separate. Logically, they're separate. All right, well, what should be the view of Christians? I mean, I've given you a historical survey. I've told you what I think the three questions are. I think the view of Christians should be a free church and a free state, two separate institutions, both subject to the authority of God. It's really a very easy position to conceptualize, all right? You have God, who is Lord of the universe, who gives his dictates to the state. You have Christ, the Lord of the church, giving his dictates to the redeemed community. And yet there's a wall of separation between the institutions. Notice that the wall is this way between state and church. The wall is not this way between state and God. Now I want to argue that this is the biblical position. In the first place, this separation of church and state was recognized in the Old Testament. Horrors to those who think the Old Testament is the classic example, you see, of the violation of church-state separation. But I get a little upset with the lack of scholarly precision on the part of people who argue in these ways. If one will do a reading of the ancient world and ancient culture, reading in these areas, he will find out that the Old Testament was unique among all the cultures of the ancient world. That in every other culture, and especially those surrounding Israel, the priest was in fact a servant of the state. The state and religion were unified. There was no such thing as an institutional church and then an institution of government. The two were brought together. To violate the king's decree was, in fact, to violate the word of God. Priests were the servants of the state. In the Old Testament, however, there was a clearly recognized separation between the work of Moses and the work of Aaron. A clear separation between the work of Nehemiah and the work of Ezra. A clear separation between the work of the tribal heads and princes, the family heads, elders, judges, and kings, that is, the judicial executive duties and the cultic duties of the priest. Israel was unique in that way, for the priest was not an executive leader. He was a religious cultic leader over against the tribal heads, uh, the elders, 
in the Kings. In my book, uh, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, on the chapter of, uh, in the chapter on separation of church and state, I go into some detail just to belabor the point that there were differences between the officials of the church and the state in the Old Testament. Differences in their duties, differences in their regulations. You notice that the differences were so great that when Uzziah tried to offer sacrifice to God, God struck him with leprosy. He was not to violate the separation between church and state. If the um, President of the United States tried to preach a sermon today, would he be struck with leprosy? You see, the separation of church and state was a very, very strongly enforced thing in the Old Testament. The requirements between the priest and the kings were different. The succession from one priest to another was different than the succession of one king to another. Could anybody who was not from the tribe of Judah be the legitimate king? No. Could anybody who was not of the house of Aaron in the tribe of Levi be a legitimate high priest? No. So the succession was different. The location of their work was different. Their servants were different. Their tributes were different. The penalties they imposed were different. And their personnel were different. What more do you want? There was quite a clear separation of church and state in the Old Testament. And yet, did that mean that the church or the state had different moral authorities? No, they were both under the authority of God, subject to his law, subject to the indictment of his prophets, who would come and bring indictment against either the pagan priest, the corrupt priest, or against the kings who had uh, fallen into disobedience. The separation between church and state was a functional separation in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 19.11 is perhaps it's not the only by any means and my ch the chapter in my book goes into quite a bit but in Second Chronicles 19.11 we find a, a classic statement of church-state separation. Okay, Jehoshaphat is establishing uh, judges and we read, Behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of Jehovah, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, in all the king's matter. Rather clear? The high priest is over you in matters of Jehovah, the ruler of the house of Judah is over you in the king's matters. All right, so a functional separation between the matters of the king and the matters of Jehovah, between the priest and the ruler in Judah. Now, that separation is paralleled in the New Testament. You notice that the New Testament teaches, quote, that God ordains ministers. The word ordination and the word minister are used for officers in the church and the state in the New Testament. There are ministers of God, ordained of God in the state and in the church. Moreover, Jesus clearly taught in Matthew 22, verse 21, that we are to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. How did Jesus argue that point? He said, whose image is on this coin? The image of Caesar. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render unto God the things that are God's. Well, where is God's image found? On everybody, including Caesar. God's image, you see, is not just on a coin. All mankind is the image of God. And all mankind must serve God even as we must in our tithing, I mean in our taxing, serve the magistrate. Render to God the things that are God's, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Moreover, the doctrine of two swords is taught in the New Testament. In John 6, verse 15, 
We read these words. Jesus therefore perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king withdrew again into the mountain himself alone. Jesus would not be made a civil king. He would not be made a social king. He would not be a political ruler. Jesus made it very clear that the reason they wanted to do this is because they wanted bread. They wanted a bread king. They didn't want him to rule in the way that he said he would in John 8. How does, John, how does Jesus rule? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Not bread kings, not political messiahs, but the truth of God shall make you free. So Jesus would not be made a king. But notice Luke 23, verse 2. Luke 23, verse 2 says, This is before Pilate, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Has there ever been a greater slander in all of human history? All three of those were directly confronted by Jesus. He did not forbid giving tribute to Caesar. He did not pervert the nation. And he did not say that he was a king. He refused being made a king in the sense that he's being accused here. All right, look at John 18, verses 33 to 37. Now again, uh, before Pilate, John 18 in verse 33, And Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it thee concerning me? Is this a question that you have in your own mind, or did somebody put you up to this? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. Look at uh, Matthew 26, verse 52. Matthew 26, 52, of course, is the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is betrayed and then seized. Peter has taken out his sword and he smites the servant of the high priest, striking off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword, all they that take the sword, shall perish by the sword. Or thinkest thou that I cannot beseech my father, and he shall even now send me more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus said, I can be delivered if I wish to be delivered. Peter, put up your sword. My kingdom doesn't come with swords loud clashing, you see, the stir of rolling drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. All right, Jesus is falsely accused of claiming to be a king and subverting the nation. Jesus had already separated church and state matters and said to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's falsely accused. And so Pilate comes, having been put up to it by the Jews, and says, Are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom does not receive its authority from hence, that is, from this realm. It's not that type of kingdom, Pilate, or else my servants would fight. Peter was rebuked for trying to fight in, uh, in advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right, so Jesus, having said that his kingdom was not an earthly kingdom in that sense, that is, it doesn't have earthly means and an earthly origin, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Pilate's having a hard time comprehending this discourse. 
Well, then, are you a king? Jesus said, you have said that I am a king. And it's, it's hard in English to render this. In Greek, it is to say, that's right, I am a king. You've said it correctly. I am a king. To this end have I been born, and to this end am I come into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Not bread kings, not swords, Peter, but the truth shall set you free. My kingdom is not of this world. My servants don't fight. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom in that sense. Pilate understands the point, right? Wrong. Jesus having extracted Pilate that he is a king, a king of the truth, not a king of the nations in the sense that Pilate is. Pilate says, what is truth? And I wish I could go into the discourse of Cornelius Van Til here. He says that's one of the highest insults ever um, given to Jesus Christ. When Pilate, speaking to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, said, what is truth? But anyway, Jesus did not have a kingdom of this world, although it is a kingdom in this world. Jesus said we are to render our tribute to Caesar. The things that are Caesar's are to go to him. He would not use the physical sword in the defense of his kingdom. Nevertheless, Ephesians 6, verse 17 teaches that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, the truth that sets us free. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are not fleshly, are not physical weapons, but are rather weapons of the Spirit, which are mighty before God for the casting down of all fortresses that um, raise up against the knowledge of God. In Revelation, the 19th chapter, verses 11 to 21, we see that Jesus Christ comes forth uh, to do battle against the nations that have been uh, drawn into an alliance of rebellion against him. And the sword that Christ uses to smite the nations is the sword out of his mouth, the preaching of the word, which is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, because it pierces right down to the very spiritual um, inner being of man. The New Testament teaches then a doctrine of two swords, the sword of the state, which Paul said is not wielded in vain by the minister of God, the magistrate, and the sword of the spirit, which is for the converting of the nations. There are two swords, and because there are two swords, there's a separation between church and state. I want you, uh, there's one more theme in the New Testament that I want to get through quickly. And that's in the experience of Paul. I want you to notice how Paul could appeal to Caesar and Paul could appeal against Caesar. In Acts 25, 11, Paul has had the experience already in Ephesus and, um, let me see, that, yeah, Corinth. At Corinth, he was protected by Gallio and in Ephesus um, by the Roman guard. And so in Acts 25.11, when he thinks he's going to be done ill by the Jews of the Sanhedrin who have risen up against him, he says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if none of those things are true, whereof these accuse me, no man can give me up unto them. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar to protect me against the lawless deeds of these Jews. So Paul could appeal to the protection of Caesar. He recognized the legitimate jurisdiction of Caesar. And on the other hand, in Acts 17, verse 7, we find Paul appealing against Caesar in the name of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 7. Of whom Jason hath received, and these all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. 
Paul would teach contrary to the decrees of Caesar in the name of King Jesus. Now how can you reconcile that, that Paul could appeal to Caesar, and yet Paul could appeal against Caesar in the name of King Jesus? The separation of church and state, but both being subject to the authority of God. When Caesar does his job, Paul appeals to Caesar. When Caesar's not doing his job, he appeals against Caesar in the name of the higher king. Yes, Wayne. Yeah, I think it's very likely that, yeah, that is an accurate reflection of what he preached, that there was another king, Jesus, and he taught contrary to the decrees of Caesar. If you have any question about that, I think you should read Romans, the 13th chapter. I mean, Revelation, the 13th chapter. Whether it's very clear that the 144,000 will not obey the decrees of the beast, of Caesar. And so Paul taught, when necessary, contrary to the decrees of Caesar in the name of King Jesus. In Romans 13, which is a passage I was getting confused a second ago, in Romans 13, where Paul teaches submission to the civil magistrate, he teaches submission precisely because the magistrate is to be submissive to God. It's as the magistrate is a minister of God, not vainly using the sword, but rather punishing evildoers and avenging God's wrath that we are to submit to the magistrate. Consequently, it seems to me throughout the New Testament we have precisely what we find throughout the Old Testament, a functional and institutional separation of church and state with both being subject to the authority of God. I'll tell you one thing that the separation of church and state certainly does not mean. It does not mean secularism, which is the, the crying uh, plea of our day, it seems to me, by so many of a liberal bent. I'd like to read for you what is labeled the demands of liberalism from the Liberal League and their pamphlet, The Index. The Liberal League's Index, The Demands of Liberalism. We demand that churches and other ecclesiastical properties shall no longer be exempted from just taxation. We demand that chaplains in Congress and state legislatures, the Navy and Army, prisons and asylums and other institutions shall be discontinued, so forth and so on. Uh, I'm going to jump down to the bottom. We demand that all laws enforcing Sunday or the Sabbath shall be repealed. We demand that all laws looking to the enforcement of Christian morality shall be abrogated and that all laws shall be conformed to the requirements of natural morality, equal rights, and impartial liberty. And finally, we demand that not only is the not only in the constitutions of the United States and of the several states, but also in the practical administration of the same, no privilege or advantage shall be conceded to Christianity or any other special religion, that our entire political system shall be founded and administered on a purely secular basis and that whatever changes shall prove necessary to this end shall be consistently, unflinchingly, and promptly made. The demands of the Liberal League. Anybody want to guess what the date of these demands of the Liberal League is? Sounds like it was written yesterday, doesn't it? January 4th, 1873. And finally, the report of the Special Committee of the Presbyterian Church in the United States, the um, UP uh, USA, United Presbyterian Church. Uh, to its 174th General Assembly in 1962 on a committee on church-state relations reported its desire for a totally secular state on the ground that the conception of the Christian state is as dangerous for true religion as for civil liberty. We must not have a Christian state. It's not only the demands of the liberal league, but the demands of, in fact, a denomination that calls itself Christian 
that we are not to have a Christian state. I wish to argue in closing that the concept of a Christian state is in fact a biblical concept. Genesis 9, excuse me, Genesis 12, verse 3, Abraham was told that all nations would be blessed in him. In Psalm 22, verses 27 to 28, we learn that all nations are to submit to the Messiah. In Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, we read that Christ is to rule in the midst of his enemies. In Psalm 72, we read that all his enemies are to lick the dust and all kings are to serve him. In Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, we read this prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry nor lift up his voice nor cause it to be heard in the street. A bruised reed will he not break and a dimly burning wick will he not quench. He will bring justice and truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has set justice in the earth and the isles are waiting for his law. The Messiah comes to establish his law in the earth, to establish justice in the earth. All kings are to serve him. Look at Micah 4, verse 2. Micah 4, 2. And many nations shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Jehovah, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and will decide concerning strong nations afar off. Christ will establish justice in the earth. The nations are awaiting the law of God. Christ will bring the law of God to the nations. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. teaches that the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of that government and of peace, Upon the throne of David there shall be no end, and the zeal of Jehovah of hosts shall accomplish it. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and following, Paul teaches that all enemies of Jesus Christ are now being progressively subdued. He says that Jesus Christ is bringing all enemies captive under his feet, and the last enemy to be subdued will be death. Because at the very end of um, this age, when death is conquered by the general resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is subduing all nations to himself. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 12 and 13, But he, when he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That's the exaltation, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Henceforth, expecting that his enemies will be made the footstool of his feet. Jesus Christ was enthroned on high with an expectation that God will bring all nations to be his servants. Even as Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2 had said, Jehovah saith unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jehovah will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Or look at the second psalm. Verse 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will tell of the decree. Jehovah said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, be wise, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. I dare say that the concept of a Christian nation is embedded in the scriptures. Didn't Jesus say, 
after his resurrection, all power and authority in heaven and on earth is mine. We have many schools of eschatology, many schools of ethics today that call themselves Christian and biblical that are glad to say that Jesus has all authority in heaven. But he said he had all authority in heaven and on earth. And that's why he says we are to disciple the nations, teaching them to observe whatsoever he has commanded. And thus Jesus could teach us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All power, on earth, uh, all power and authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. Paul himself says in Colossians 1, verse 16, For in him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created through him and unto him. There's not a throne on earth anywhere that has not been created unto Jesus Christ. In Revelation, the 11th chapter, verse 15, John puts, I think, the capstone on our real quick biblical theological survey of what the Bible teaches about a Christian nation. When he says, The seventh angel sounded, and there followed great voices in heaven. And they said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, the separation of church and state, whatever somebody might argue on the basis of a political doctrine or a sociological doctrine or some ethical, secular principle, whatever the separation of church and state means according to others, for Christians, it does not mean a separation of the state from God's requirements. It means there shall be no establishment of religion, there shall be an institutional separation of church and state, but it does not mean that the state is free from the dictates of God. It does not mean secularism. It does not mean pluralism. Theocracy is perfectly consistent with a separation of church and state. By the way, my last remark. Those who say we must isolate God from government in the name of a church-state separation, I dare say, are worse than heathens, because even the heathens believe false gods should govern the state. But we have people today who say that no god, the living and true god, or even a heathen god, should govern the state. The state has moral obligations, and all morality is founded on religion. The state cannot be separated from religion, but the state can be separated from the institution of the church. Let's take a break.